Thanks again, Sarah and Denny, for joining me for a discussion about male fertility. In the first episode, we talked about the lifestyle changes which could influence sperm quality. When considering fertility, there is focus on female age, but I now want to turn to the impact male age has on sperm quality and the possible impact that this can have on the health of children, particularly those born to older fathers. Leading on from that, I'd also like to talk a little about the future of routine fertility checks for men. Just like the discussion um, for young women, um, are, we, are we perhaps moving towards uh, advising men to freeze sperm at a younger age? The, the age issues becoming very interesting in terms of um, uh, you know, sperm quality, let's say. Uh, obviously, you know, we have these examples of Charlie Chaplin, Mick Jagger, fathering children in, you know, their, their, their advanced age, basically. But, but the data is very clear in terms of, of sperm quality. If you look at sperm DNA structure, um, increasing mutation rates, um, probably the most concerning data is, is the data that's sort of coming out on looking at offspring of, 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 of fathers that are aged and, and showing slightly higher rates of neurodegenerative disorders. Um, so that that is, you know, concerning and, you know, does point to certain changes in sperm according to age. Now, whether that's solely age, um, we, we really don't know. Is it, you know, like a two-hit hypothesis, if you want? Some people are sort of talking about that where age is sort of is in the background, but you also have environmental factors or other factors that, that may have impacted on the sperm quality. So I think that area of research, in, you know, in the next five, ten years um, will, be, will be something I think we need to look at and understand much better. And I, my understanding is that, that uh, conditions like schizophrenia um, are more prevalent in um, children of older fathers. Sarah, is, is, is the risk um, a relative increase, but the absolute risk is, is such that we tend to ignore it? Um, I think you're absolutely right. It is a, a relative risk rather than an absolute risk. Uh, the data really comes from, you know, huge data sets of millions of children born and from, you know, Northern America studies and also from uh, Sweden and uh, Denmark and so on. I think it's pretty uh, conclusive that certainly dads of an older age and how you define an older age is also an interesting, uh, uh, you know, kind of difference of opinion. But over 40, over 45, over 50, um, that, that children born from dads of an older age. Study, a, study now, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, but uh, that, uh, that children from, from older men um uh, who have have an increased risk, but this risk might be, you know, like a one or two, one and a half, two times increased risk of something that's still extraordinarily rare. Um, and 
you know, that, that then, you know, it becomes a really difficult question or conversation to have with a couple in front of you uh, in terms of, you know, also, you know, with certainly autism or schizophrenia or major depression, that these things may not be apparent until the child then turns a teenager or into young adulthood themselves. And whether the parents then are even still around or, you know, you know, those sort of questions of, you know, should you, you know, ethically as a clinician be telling them these potential risks, of course, but at the same time, you know, how how you deal with as a on a personal level kind of that information in front of you and, and making a decision about whether to go ahead with fertility treatment or whether to go ahead with having a, a family or not I think just becomes extraordinarily challenging um and you know as I say the data that's there is is quite convincing but it's all based on sort of hazard risks or risk ratios rather than you know there's you know sort of still in a you know one in a million or one in a few thousand kind of absolute risk course one of the um questions that came up during the webinar was whether um given all of the issues around age-related decline and the impact of environmental factors and so on whether the holistic approach to to male subfertility should require us to do some sort of regular screening of their fertility status is that something we should be aiming for and and what would we do? What tests would be appropriate? Any any thoughts in particular on the testing, Denny? Well, I think I I mentioned um, that some of the new sort of more home based testing, if you want, um, strategies may allow more testing, and in in providing more testing, we you know ease of testing. It, it may allow us to create a, a more of a, a history of male infertility for each patient, if you want. So, um, so each patient could create their own footprint of health, if you want, for for um, you know, and if if we count sperm as you know part of that health profile, then you know maybe that's where you know the future lies in 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 using um, you know new technologies maybe to to allow. More frequent checkups, if you want, and and maybe sperm health, you know, is will be part of the checkup process for for a male. Um, so maybe that's where we we might go in the future. And Sarah, can you can you envisage an annual fertility checkup? So um, I think I mentioned this in the webinar. I, I went back and I had a look at what some sort of definition of a screening test would be. And the idea behind a screening test is that you pick up a potential health disorder or disease before anyone has any symptoms. And the idea is by by picking it up early, early detection, you can then institute lifestyle changes or surveillance in some way to reduce the risk of developing disease or to treat it. And I think the difficulty is that male health surveillance doesn't quite meet the criteria or criterion of a screening test in terms of you know kind of semen analysis being our only real indicator of are you producing sperm and and how how do they swim and how do they move and what do they look like and I think one of the issues that we have is that even semen analysis is not a hundred percent guarantee or other unless you've got no sperm uh you know it's not going to tell you whether you're going to be able to father a 
pregnancy or have a family. Um, I think clearly, you know, we know that there are risks of male infertility that result from having a low count. But we also know from running sort of donor programs for research and so on that men's count, even across the course of time in an apparently healthy, you know, student or postgraduate student kind of population can vary quite widely. Um, I love Denny's idea of of some sort of real time or almost real time surveillance and kind of capturing what it is around at that moment in time, what you've eaten, drunk or been exposed to that might have profound influences or or not, as the case may be. But I think if really what we're suggesting here is let's get our you know young men in and 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 test their sperm every year. And if they've got a really low sperm count, or, or I guess that's what you're saying, I don't even know what we've decided is a is the point. You know, the only thing that we could instigate would be freezing <laughs> sperm. And then if we freeze sperm, we know that we're likely to, you know, usually in the case of freezing and then thawing the sperm, you lose sperm cells, but you often affect its motility and and so on. So really what you're then saying is you're kind of committing this population to at best some sort of insemination or IVF treatment at worst ICSI. And I think then that you sort of self-perpetuate a situation where male fertility begets further male infertility and we're making more of a problem than actually solving. I don't mean to be quite so doom and gloom about it all, but I guess I'm just sort of trying to explore this and thinking about it. And I'm not really entirely sure that that, that screening is a valid option right now. But some form of surveillance to better understand what exposures do, I think, is a a really great idea. That's great. And you you mentioned the semen analysis. So perhaps this is a a good uh, opportunity to move on to that. Um, and, and think about the use of the semen analysis and how it directs treatment. So um, I, I'm always fascinated uh, by people's different views on the merits or otherwise of a WHO 2010 standard semen analysis. So perhaps, Denny, if you kick off, what, what value do you place on the standard semen analysis and and what other screening tests do you think perhaps should be mandatory as part of the initial screen? Oh, that's a, <laughs> it's a loaded question, let's say. <laughs> Count and motility is what we sort of survive by in an IVF clinic, if you want. Um, so if you look at what an IVF clinic needs, it, it literally is, have I got enough sperm and are they moving? And sadly, that's become the go-to for, for a, lot of, a lot of clinics. And, you know, you could even argue that given the, such high rates of ICSI um, worldwide, um, you know, are people even looking at that CBIT analysis because they're, they're not even, they're ignoring the good sperm counts and good sperm motility and just going straight to ICSI. So in, in many IVF clinics, you know, I'd hate to say it, but I would argue that the semen analysis has become pointless, basically. Uh, now, in terms of a, a true semen analysis, if you want, as a diagnostic, um, you know, andrologists surely are using it as, a, as an indicator and they're also looking at, you know, the seminal plasma. They're, they're looking at, at, at other values within the seminal plasma. But in, in, in my experience now, that's becoming a much rarer event. Um, so the semen analysis as we know it, you know, really 
hasn't provided as much information, I would say, and, and I think is even in terms of the, the health of the male is providing us less and less. Um, if we sort of look to the future and, and think what, you know, what other parameters we can look at in the sperm, and obviously, you know, there's still a lot of discussion around DNA fragmentation. Um, I, I still believe DNA fragmentation, for example, is a good triage, if you want, for, you know, patients that may have issues or couples that would have issues for a natural conception or for insemination. Um, I think that whether it relates to ICSI rates and, and you know, conventional insemination for IVF is still probably a, a question, but I think it does give us information about the patient. And I think now these tests on chromatin status, um, epigenetic or methylation patterns and that, I think they need to be fine-tuned, but I think at some stage they will provide a, a, a more coherent information for us in terms of a semen analysis. Sarah, as a, as a clinician, you must look at semen analyses and and decide treatment plans. So, what 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 value do you place on the, the standard semen analysis? So, um, I think a semen analysis is a good start. It tells you that there is sperm production. It tells you hopefully what somebody's prognosis might be in terms of um, natural conception or what kind of route would be most appropriate in terms of treatment. It, um, it, as I say, it's not an absolute science is the problem. And even within our own lab, there'll be a variability around a result, which as clinicians, you know, I see a number, I want that number to mean that number, not somewhere between 1.5 and 2.5. I want it to mean exactly what it says on the, on the report. So I think there are, you know, there's, there is biological variability, but it does give you a, a starting point as to whether, you know, a, a good sperm count, good sperm motility is likely to be appropriate for IUI or IVF. Um, I personally don't really think that IUI offers much over and above trying to have, uh, you know, regular intercourse and, and, and getting pregnant yourselves unless the guy's away working, you know, for periods of time on end and so on. But I think what we would also do in our clinic is we assess the ejaculate on the day of treatment and we will then assign treatment IVF or ICSI depending on the sperm sample that we have in front of us on that day. because. As I say, I know it varies over time, and I think it's important that you choose the appropriate sort of sample uh, treatment rather with the, from the sample in front of you. I think what's missing in all of this is really a way of finding which what in, in, in natural conception, which of that, which of those group of millions of sperm would be the one that would ultimately fertilize an egg? What, what does it mean to be a good sperm, a sperm, sperm that's going to make a, a pregnancy and make a baby. Um, and I think it's incredible that, you know, we just don't know these fundamental questions of, 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 of how that works. So, you know, we prepare a sperm sample. We can't really pick out the ones that we think are good. There's lots of other things, as Denny has mentioned, in terms of epigenetics markers or DNA damage, but none of them give you a sample that you can then apply to clinical treatment and that's what we are genuinely missing at the moment is if you've got couples that have been trying to get pregnant for a certain amount of time and it hasn't happened we need to be much more specific at getting them pregnant than just putting everybody down this route of IVF or ICSI. Thank you I guess, I guess that's um, 
underlining really the fact that andrology has become not redundant but sidelined a little bit because we we have this powerful technique of of ICSI, um, and it's it's um, allowed us to ignore the fact that we don't we don't really know what the best sperm is. And I think the sort of data that underpins morphology assessment, which is one of my little bugbears, I'll put that out there for <laughs> so it's publicly uh, stated. Um, you know, morphology is such a difficult area, and we still don't know what an ideal sperm is. Perhaps because we're gynecologists, usually by training, it's probably much easier or intuitive for gynecologists to look at the female perspective or to look at the female patient in a great more detail. And my worry is that although the man is such an important component of this whole equation, that they tend to be overlooked. And I think that's really the message that I want to get out there and that this you know, podcast will hopefully kind of raise a conversation, which is, you know, it is one plus one equals two. So we need to look at both sides of that partnership. Thank you, Sarah and Denny. And thank you to everyone who's tuned in to our second episode of Fertility Insights. Please like, comment and share and make sure to tune in to our next episode.